I'm Pastor Scott, lead pastor of the river. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. And hey, we are in the midst of a series on the book of Romans. And um, it is called Truth That Transforms. And it's about that great name. It's about the name of Jesus. Uh, truth, as we understand it in this community, is not a set of abstract principles. Um, truth is not a, uh, a set of some, um, uh, you know, things that exist beyond. A, truth in Jesus Christ has come to us. We believe in this community that truth has flesh and blood. It's got skin on. And truth has come to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we say as a community that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We say that he has invited us into a kind of life that is radical and um, a kind of life that is in contrast to the life that the majority of people in this, this world live. It is a life of selfless surrender. It is a life of, of service. It is a life of putting others before ourselves in response to the God who did that for us, right? That's the invitation uh, for the Christian community, is to be a people set apart for the purposes of God in the world. It's to say, hey, the great name came to us in the person and the work of Jesus. And so there are things that are mysterious in this world. I don't want to deny the reality of mystery. There is mystery in this world. But who God is is not a mystery to us any longer. And so if you want to know who God is, and you're at a point in your life where you wonder about this, this great question that you should ask, what is God like? Start with Jesus. If you're at a point in your life where you don't feel like you've grown in your faith, you don't feel like you're, you've grown in terms of your walk with God, you got to look at Jesus now, you, you could talk about God in sort of like an abstract way and talk about truth in an abstract way, but if you want the Christian perspective on what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. Amen? And if you want to know direction in your life and where you should go and what choice to make and who to or not to hire, and if you want d wisdom, you go to Jesus. If you want to know how to be a dad and a husband and you want to know how to be a better student or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if you want direction, you go to Jesus. The Christian community, what distinguishes us from any other community on the planet, and this is throughout time and space, is that we live lives of surrender to Jesus. My kids were playing a game this morning I think maybe they heard a piece of Scott's sermon last week when I was listening to it. I was listening to the replay of the funny thing that he said, which you should go on the podcast at minute 32, 18 seconds, and listen to it, and you'll get a good giggle if you missed it in the first service last week. Just go to the website and listen to it. It's the most listened to sermon of all time at the river because of this amazing blunder. But they heard Scott talk about surrender. You remember that last week? He said surrender. And so I think they were playing a game this week that... Um, they said surrender, and if you surrender, you put your hands up, and if you said no surrender, then you got tickled. 
And so they were playing the game, surrender, then you didn't get tickled. But if you said no surrender, then you get tickled, right? Well, the reality in life is when we say no surrender, we don't get tickled. When we say no, Jesus, I'm going to do it my way, he doesn't come and like give us a little tickle. Um, We learn sometimes the really difficult way about living versus not living a life of surrender. And this is a community, is a place where we see Jesus on display all of the time. We see God on display all the time here. In the first service, we celebrated somebody who had turned 94 years old, and much of that life he's walked with God. And the grace in his life is just, it's palpable. You get around him and like you feel it. You get like a grace shock. You're like, whoa. And at the same time we walked in the first service, there was somebody who stayed afterwards and just got a diagnosis that he wondered how long he was going to live. And, and the, the confusion and, and the, the fear, but then also just like the, the hope and the joy in the midst of that. I saw Jesus in it. And as people came over and prayed with him, I, we saw Jesus. We see, we see him through the voice of a 15-year-old who the night before had celebrated this amazing homecoming and then this morning comes and blesses us with her voice and, and gives God praise. We see the presence of Jesus all the time in the community of his people. If you're not a part of a church community, my prayer for you is that you will just find a people somewhere and stick with them. Because the greatest teaching, the greatest teaching that will ever happen is in the lives of the people around us. This body of Jesus. And the greatest thing that you can ever do is, is link in with a group like that. That's where you'll see him most clearly. Hey, words on a page are beautiful, and we elevate those words in this community, and we say and we submit to them. And at the same time, man, when you see a people that are inspired by the work and the person of Jesus and living that faith out, you can't help but have your faith elevated. And so if you're here because you want to grow in the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and you think that maybe he has a word for you this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Romans 3. At verse 21, we're going to start. Before we do, I want to just lift up the body of Christ in this community, the people of God gathered here at the river. We thank you, Lord, for that great name, the name that is above every name, the name that one day every knee will bow before. God, we live in an expectation of that day. We live as a people anticipating the day when you come again. We live as people who, who wonder and long for that resurrection of our bodies. Lord, we, we live as people now of, of hope, but also people in the midst of, of fearful diagnoses. We live as people now as, as those looking at the very end of our lives and at the same time those who see life um, before us in all its fullness and goodness and joy. God, we live as people now who need your direction and instruction, and at the same time we live as directors and instructors. God, we would ask you this morning for a greater measure of your wisdom, a greater measure of your peace in our lives, a greater measure of your joy and your love as a community. Help us to see you in the lives of the brothers and sisters around us. Help us to experience more of your love through them. And 
give more of your love through them as well. Thank you for this community. Thank you for the long history of people who have walked with you. We honor them, God. We give you praise for their faith. We ask that you would honor it and them, even in the reading of this word this morning. And it's in that great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. Are we fired up a little bit? I'm a little bit fired up. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a little bit pumped up um, because we're getting to some good news. It's been a, a journey to get here to Romans 3.21, and it's been some kind of like Paul's been poking at people for quite a while, like the last four or five sermons, about how bad um, the, the state of humanity is. We don't need a reminder of that this morning. All you had to do was watch the news this week, and y- you saw it. Uh, we're in a bit of a, a pla- a, an odd place as a civilization, um, with terror uh, and terrorists. We have um, disease, and, and we don't have to look very far at death to, to see sort of that negative uh, reality in humanity. And so those first chapters, one after one verse 18 through 320, were all about like, hey, it's pretty bad out there. It's, it's, it can get pretty bad. And humanity, you guys, um, you failed in the project that God had established for you. And now we have that three-letter word that Scott loves to preach about. And starting at verse 21, we are going to read uh, some good news. Now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Well, yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So verse 21 through 22, now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What do you think of when you hear the word righteousness? What do you, what do you image, what do you imagine when you hear the word righteousness. Maybe you don't imagine anything and the word has very little meaning to you. How many of you are in that camp 
They're like, righteousness is just a word. It doesn't mean a lot to me. That's kind of where I am a little bit. Righteousness doesn't mean a ton to me. But when I do think of something, or did, it was oftentimes like a moral sense of moral perfection. When I talked about or thought about righteousness, I thought about the kid in class who always stayed on green and never ended up on yellow and certainly never ended up on red. You know what I'm talking about? When I thought about righteousness, I thought about ethical perfection. I thought about those people who, man, in class, they always got to stay on green. Did you guys have the traffic light system of behavioral modification when you were in school? How many of you did? Okay. So teachers, um, man, I love teachers, and I actually was a product of the Christian education um, school system, which I'm deeply appreciative of. But I could never stay on green. I could not stay on green to save my life. Amen? I was a yellow card or yellow thing kid every day. And in a lot of days, I ended up on red. And then I lost my lunch, and it was not good. But somebody reminded me in the first service that, hey, red card kids make great preachers. Because <laughs> they get it. They get what it's like to fall short, right? When I think about ethical perfection and righteousness, or when I think about righteousness, that's often what I think of, is the people on green. And I think, okay, God is a green card kind of a guy, right? Righteousness. He's righteous. He'd never get on yellow card, and he certainly wouldn't get on red. But I don't think that's what Paul is getting at in this text. When he uses the phrase righteousness, he's talking about something much more than just ethical perfection. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 143. People who know the Bible a lot better than I do have said that they think that Paul might be offering a midrash, which is sort of like an interpretation or a teaching or a retelling of Psalm 143 in this section that we're reading in Romans, uh, starting in Romans 3. They think that he may be offering kind of a midrash, which is a fun word to say, um, of this psalm. And so I want you to read with me righteousness in this psalm and what it sounds like and also what word it's coupled with. Because in Hebrew, there's no exclamation point in the writing. So how do you emphasize something if there's no exclamation point? Well, you repeat it. And hopefully if you repeat it enough, people will be like, oh, this part's really important. It's all important, but this part's important. You know like when you're writing a letter to somebody and you're like, I love you, exclamation, 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 point, 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 right? That's really, then it means it's really important. By the way, what's the max number of exclamation points you should ever use in any form of communication, including text and written paper? English people, what is it? One? I thought it was three. Three sounds better. (laughs) I'm gonna keep using three, so there. Yellow card, yellow card kid. But if you want to highlight something in the um, Jewish understanding of the text, then you repeat it, okay? So here we are, Psalm 143, verse 1. Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Okay? You got it? So the psalmist is in trouble, and he calls on God, and he appeals to God's righteousness. God, come to my relief because you're the green card kid who never does anything wrong. Now, that's not the right right understanding of that word. Now, turn to verse 11. Similar thing. 
For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. Save my butt, God, because I'm in trouble and I'm appealing to your righteousness. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Okay? So notice what words get linked with righteousness. God, your faithfulness on the one hand, and on the other one is what? Your unfailing love. All right? Now here's why this is important to me. Because the word righteousness is not about, again, some abstract ethical principle. It's a relational word. It's a word that comes out of the context of relationship between God, Yahweh, and his people. His righteousness was this standard of God always keeping his end of the bargain. It was God always coming through, preserving his people, always being faithful, always his love being unfailing. Okay? So when you read righteousness, don't just think green card kind of a God. Think excessively good in keeping his word. Think excessively abundant in offering his mercy. Increasingly, like, perfectly faithful. He doesn't fail. He's always faithful. And how does Paul know this? How has this righteousness, this relationship, remember, the people had... It was hundreds of years since they'd heard from God, hundreds of years since they'd had a prophet. And always the prophets pointed to a Messiah. Always the old, entire Old Testament, there was, they anticipated the coming of a king. Notice Paul says, the law and the prophets testified to it. They testified that there was one who was coming that would reveal this righteousness, this, this relational uh, fulfillment. And so in Jesus, that has happened. It's been revealed, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, I debated whether or not to share this. I'm going to um, because I think it's important to understand this idea. In verse 22, the righteousness from God comes through the faith in Jesus Christ. How many of your Bibles say faith in Jesus Christ? To all who believe, which is redundant, which I know I just said, hey, in Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. That's not necessarily the case here in this Greek. It says the righteousness from God comes through the faith in Jesus Christ. But there's another way to read that. And prior to the Reformation, it was more often read the faith of Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of of Jesus Christ. All right? Well, what happened in the Reformation? Well, Martin Luther, who was a um, Catholic monk, had a preoccupation and a deep concern about whether or not God was truly good, whether or not he was gracious, because his, the way he was portrayed within the system that Luther was a part of was, God was kind of a jerk. He was holding people in, like, purgatory, and you could spring them if you came and bought indulgences or something, right? You could spring your relatives out of the waiting place 
out of like pre-heaven or pre-hell, you could spring them if you came to the church and bought some stuff. And Luther was like, this is dirty. This is corrupt. I don't like God. He seems really mean. Why would he just hold people and wait for like you to pay for them to get out of prison, right? So Luther has this preoccupation. He's like, well, this just seems wrong. It, it can't take all of this. This can't be the system that God has established. And he goes and he reads his Bible and he discovers passages like this one. And so his preoccupation is whether or not God is good. And then he asks the question, well, what is it that we have to do? What actually is required of us? And his conclusion is that the only thing that's required of the people of God is faith in Christ. And so we get the whole, like, um, by faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, all of that comes out of that time. Because the question was, how can God be good if he seems like such a jerk? But that's not Paul's fundamental preoccupation. That's not what the apostle is writing to the people in Rome about. His fundamental concern is, is God going to follow through with his promise to send us the Messiah? Is he going to send us the chosen one? Will God be good and faithful to his promise? And so his answer is, yeah, in Jesus, we see the righteousness, God coming through on his end of the relationship. We see him coming through, and we see it perfectly in Jesus' faithfulness to the law. He was faithful and obedient to God even unto death. That's what Philippians 2 celebrates, that Jesus was faithful and perfectly surrendered to God even unto death. Now, why does that matter and why is that important? Well, here's what it does for me. If I read this, verse 22, the righteousness from God comes through pistos Christo. There's no, um, what is if or of? What is that called, language people? Preposition? Yeah, yeah, I knew that. In the Greek, there's no preposition. It's just pistos Christo. Faith, Christ, right? So if righteousness comes through faith of Christ, it comes to you and me not on the basis of anything we've done. It comes to those who believe because they have the eyes to see what God has done in Christ. But for me, it shifts my heart from feeling obligated to have faith to, no, Jesus has already done it. He's lived out that end of the relationship, God's end of the relationship perfectly. Amen? Jesus has already done it. He's already, um, in the next verse, been the sacrifice uh, for all of our sin, for the sin of the world. God has already done it. And the invitation is to trust. Okay? Now, the disagreement um, about this text is obviously part of a larger conversation that happens outside of here. I'd encourage you to go check it out. But for me personally, as I read the text, that makes me want to give God more praise. Because he already did something, Jesus did something perfectly that I could never do. Okay, good, moving on. In God's revelation of himself, he's not saying, or he's saying, I've never lied, um, and I'm way better than you ever dared imagine. Notice verse 23. We've read this verse, we, we've proof-texted it for a long time. It's part of the Roman road, and it's the first part of the Roman road, and we use it to tell people how bad they are which is a terrible way to witness, by the way. I don't like it. 
I don't like witnessing to people by starting off telling them how lousy they are. Because that's not how the scripture starts, right? Genesis 1 says God created humanity. It was like, it's so good. It's teeming with potential. He created humanity. He says, ah, when I look at them, they were so good. Yes, sin, but sin is a sub-point in the creation story. Does that make sense? God starts out by saying humanity is so, so good. I've created it beautiful. It's bursting with, with potential. I put them in charge of everything else. The psalmist says they're, they're a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. They're crowned with, with God's glory and his own image. So when we start out by, by bringing people to Christ, by telling them how lousy they are, we're not being truthful. Does that make sense? And so when we use this verse to highlight how bad people are, I get a little uneasy. We're part of a tradition that for a really long time um, had as a, as a core confession the sinfulness of humanity. I'm not trying to, to say that sin isn't real and that you and I aren't sinful, but we're not fundamentally sinful. We're not first and foremost sinful. Your primary identity isn't sinner. Created, good, image bearer of God. Fallen, broken, blah, 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 yeah. Sinful, yeah. But that's not your fundamental identity. And when we take a text like this and out of context to tell people how bad they are, we miss what I think the text is really trying to say. All have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. The text, again, is about God. Paul's concern here is not about how bad people are, but how good God is. Think with me for a minute about the word glory. What do we mean when we say glory? Verse 23, if you're following your notes, you're halfway through. What do we mean when we say glory? That's the space there. Um, glory is one of those words, again, that I'm not a huge fan of because it just it, it doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. It doesn't always move me. Glory, when we talk about the glory of God, what do we mean? And so the best way that I can think to describe it, um, it it's not just something you shout out like, glory, glory, right? I know that's what Mario's thinking right now. He just wants to shout it out. Glory, you should do it, by the way. Just do it, okay. Um, but what does it actually mean? Scott mentioned a few weeks ago that the word glory um, in Hebrew is kavod, which kind of means the weight of God. I think of it like this. Um, you know when you have like a mad crush, you're just like really into somebody? How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you currently have a mad crush? Okay, good. Becky, Flew Barons, fantastic. And it's Cindy, right? Yes, okay, good. Good. Yeah, they, by the way, just celebrated 25 years of marriage. See, this is where um, people are just way cooler than you realize. For their 25th wedding anniversary, uh, you know, a lot of people like me and my wife would probably go out to eat somewhere and like maybe get a hotel or something and play games and talk. And yeah, what do the barons do? Oh, the barons, they go and climb the tallest mountain in the continental U.S., Mount Whitney, for their 25th. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Anyways, um, glory. What do we mean when we talk about glory? Well, it's like you have this mad crush. And um, when you are in a grade school and you have a crush, you know where that crush is at all times, don't you? Yeah. Um, we were stalking way before the, you know, stalker came out. Those of us with mad crushes. 
I knew this girl that I had a crush on. I knew her schedule, okay? Is it creepy? Maybe a little bit. But I knew where she was all the time. Okay, that, I know, realize that sounds way creepy, but you, you are the same way. <laughs> you are. Right, Lee? Come on, Lee. Lee was at homecoming last night, and he was dancing, and he knew where his crush was at all times, right, Lee? No. <laughs> but we know where they are. We know where they're sitting. When they're in the room, you feel it, right? Like something in your heart's like up a notch, like your hair kind of goes up on the back of your neck. You know where they're at. You just hope, like, you're kind of, like, trying to play it cool, like, working on your stuff. They walk by and see, like, you're scribbling on the desk, and you're just like, hey, right? <laughs> walk by, sitting behind you. You're trying to play it cool. Am I the only one that played this game? All right. All right, Sid. Thank you. Sid feels the same way about the 49ers, right? Like, boo, no. We know where they are. Their presence and their weight, we feel it. We know what, what they're doing, and we know what they like and what they don't like. And we don't want to say a comment in class that might annoy them. We want to say something that they'll think is clever or cute or will just be quiet because they like quiet people. We're going to alter our activity and our engagement with everybody else because of the presence of that person, right? That's kind of what I think about when I hear the word glory. It's kind of like that a little bit. The glory of God. You're aware of his presence. You know he's there and he's way better. And like your heart beats a little bit quicker when you come to the knowledge of his awareness. Years ago we went to um, Rehoboth and we were hiking in Canyon de Chez. Anyone been to Canyon de Chez? It's not Canyon de Chelly, which is what I thought it was, but it's like a silent L. Yeah, silent L. So we're hiking in the canyon, and um, all of a sudden we come to this, I come to this really big rock. I don't know why I did it, but I stopped at this rock. It's, I don't know how big it is. It's huge. Like, it's a really, really, really big rock, and it's a, what do you call it, monolith, right? So it's like one piece of stone. And I'm standing at the stone, and then my imagination starts going, yellow light kid. What if this rock all of a sudden started talking to me? What if, like, all of a sudden there was a crack in this rock, and it was like, Hey, son. And I had this really, like, um, I don't know, spiritually awakening experience, standing there thinking about this rock. And I realized how much more it weighed than I did. And I realized if the rock did come alive, even if it just, like, accidentally fell over, I would be crushed by the weight of it. It was ginormous. And if the rock talked... I would fall to my face on the ground in absolute wonder, fear, terror. I would actually probably run and find a news reporter to and be like, I promise I wasn't doing any drugs, and the rock was talking to me. <laughs> but it made me think, if this is what I think about a rock, you know, sometimes when we talk about God, it's kind of hard to imagine something like that because he, he can't be bound by any one thing. But when you, if you think about a rock like that, how much more God Right, who spoke the universe into existence. How much more God? And so the point of emphasizing for Paul God's goodness and his righteousness and his faithfulness isn't to say, look at what a, a little terrible thing you are. It's to say, look at the glory of God. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the overwhelming goodness. When the authors of the Bible talked about it, they were filled with awe and wonder and an overwhelming sense of, of like their mortality, of their limited 
existence in the world. If you think about God as eternal, which I don't even know how to think about it, just think about what if God was a million? You know, what if he was a million years old? What if he was a a human, a million years old? How much reverence would you have for someone who had been around for a million years? How much more God who has been from everlasting to everlasting? The awe of it and the wonder of it should give you and me pause and go, man, God. Verse 24. By this God, the one whose glory we we miss, how can we attain it? By this God, we have been justified freely by his grace. That means there's there's no strings. It's not there's no but there been justified freely by him. It's a gift. He's given that gift of relationship with him with nothing in the way, nothing between us. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Um, when I was in school, we learned that word, if you split the A-T and then down the middle, it's at-one-ment. So through Christ, we have an at-one-ment relationship with God. How many of you learned that? Atonement, at-one-ment, maybe you even taught it. Um, so through Christ and his sacrifice, we have this relationship with God where we are now at one. There is no barrier between us except the ones that you and I construct in our mind the ones that you and I continue to live out in rebellion to God. But on his end, he's perfectly kept his end of the bargain. And the invitation then is to trust. To trust that he's removed every barrier between us. Uh, the, the language there is of a sacrifice. And you almost see, when I read it, I think of God almost as the priest, right? Um, God presented him. The, the language of presentation is um, like a priest offering a sacrifice in the temple. And so God presents Jesus like a, a lamb. They would put the priest, their hand on the lamb or the sheep or the goat, on its head. Why would they do that? They would put their hand on its head. Anybody know why they would do that, what they were doing? What's that? Not to make it bow. That'd be, that's hard, by the way. I got a dog, and trying to make that thing lay, it does not want to lay. The priest would put its hand on the sheep's head to transfer the guilt and the shame and the sin of the community. They would transfer all of the yuck of the community to this lamb, and then they would slaughter the lamb, and they would eat it and present it as a sacrifice. That's the language here, right? Jesus is, is presented by God as a sacrifice for the sin of the community. One sacrifice, once and for all, for all. Yeah? The sacrifice, once and for all, for all. He did away with that entire sacrificial system. No more sacrifices, no more dead animals. God has said in Christ, 
No more of that. I've made a way now for you and me to be at one that can never be broken. It can never be broken. Here was my question when I was reading this. Why does God need a sacrifice to offer forgiveness of sins? He's God. Why can't he just say, you're forgiven? Why the need for a sacrifice? Well, mostly we say, well, because of like a system and the system that he set up, there was need and cause for a sacrifice. You had to do a sacrifice. Yeah, but he's God. He can look the other way, right? Can't God just be like, no, I forgive them. No more system, I forgive them. That's the end of it. Why the need for Jesus? I came across a story that I think was kind of neat and I want to share. There was a king and this kingdom that he was a part of um, there was like perfect order. This king had established it in a beautiful area where um, crops grew like crazy and um, animals grew and it was just like there was shalom there, right? There was peace and wholeness and happiness and people like ran around playing frisbee and ultimate frisbee and like golfed all day long in this kingdom. Is that more like heaven or hell? Doesn't they golfed all day long. They played wiffle ball with their friends when they weren't working. Um, they sat around singing songs and playing instruments and um, it was just like perfect wholeness in this kingdom. And then um, they would bring their crops and things that, that they had grown and they would bring it to the king and it would be distributed among the people, which maybe sounds a little bit too much like socialism, but whatever. Um, people were, were happy, content. They lived in order in this land. And then one day, while one of the people was bringing their crops to be weighed, they noticed that some of it was missing. And they thought, maybe I like misplaced it, but I don't think I did. Um, and a little bit of suspicion started to creep into this community. And the next day they came and there was definitely some of their crop missing. And so the king stood before the people and said, people, no stealing. If we catch you stealing, we will have to lash you 10 times, 10 times. And people were like, oh, we don't want to lash him. No, was, they were afraid. And the next day, crop missing. And the king upped the ante 20, 30, 40 50, 60, five, six days in a row this happened. And then one day they caught the thief. Caught her in the act. It was the king's mom. Yeah, I know. The worst. The mom had been shoplifting the crops. And uh, the king said, I don't want my mom to have to receive this punishment. But in front of my people, if I don't, they're going to think that I'm not just. And if your king isn't just, how can you trust him? If he said he was going to do this, but he didn't, he'd be a bad king. He'd be corrupt. Right? He'd be dirty. We'd be talking about having the king impeached if he didn't follow through with that kind of law and that kind of order. And so the king, with all the rest of the people, went with their mom, uh, went with his, with his mom to the place where she was going to be whipped. And the whipper guy pulled back his thing, whatever it's called, whip, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and he got ready to whip his, the king's mom. And the king's heart was breaking. And so um, he did what all of the sons in here would do. Uh, the king said, stop to the whipper. And um, he said, hold on a second. And he had a, a battle with the whipper and he beat him and that was the end of it. No, I'm just kidding. The king, the king said, hold on a second. 
and he went to his mom, and he put his face against her face, and he put his arms around her, and he covered her. And then he said to the whipper, proceed. Yeah, that's a pretty good story. The king took the lashes for his mom. And, and as the whipper whipped, the mom felt the king's convulsions. She felt his pain. Every whip, the blood started to come down and it got on her dress as well. And she heard the king's groans. She felt his tears as the whipper went one through 60 and the king's back was thrashed. And at the end, the king stood and he gave his mom a kiss and he said to the community, justice has been served. Now, would that community love and serve and honor that king more or less? I think so. I think so. And because he followed through, because he was true to his word, the just king can justify. The just one can justify. And so God, in his wisdom, and God in his goodness, and God in his mercy, and God in his grace, justifies his people by covering them. The language that Paul uses is the word for covering here. Verse 27 one last note here about law before we close up on this section of text. One last note about law. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. Basically, none of us earned this relationship, this atonement with God, and so we shouldn't go around boasting and pointing fingers at others. We didn't do anything other than receive the gift. We maintain that a man is justified by, pay, by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, I just want to make one note because it clarified for me a lot of understanding about the law in Romans. And as you're reading this, you're going to be like, I don't get it. The law seems bad, but then on the other hand, it's like it's good. How many of you have that kind of contradiction? On the one hand, it says, do we get, uh, you know, do we receive this? Do we come into this relationship with God through the law? Um, and it's like, no, we don't. We're not justified by observing the law. And then the very two sentences down, he says, well, we don't nullify the law. We uphold it. So what's going on there? I think it's helpful to think about um, the law in two different ways. One is a kind of legalistic observance of the law, okay? So when you read, uh, where then is boasting, it is excluded, and what principle on that of observing the law, read that as on a legalistic observance of the law, okay? When Paul has sort of like this negative connotation about the law, it's because people, our inclination is to try to be green light people, our inclination is to try to be good and then to create a system that will make us be good. And that kind of observation of the law, the nitpicking about the law, is what Paul is referring to. It can never bring you closer to God. It won't give you, give you any more special standing or draw you into any closer relationship with him. It won't. A legalistic observation of God's command of his law 
will never give you any kind of leg up in the kingdom of heaven. They'll never draw you closer in your relationship with God. Think about it in your life. When you've tried really hard to be a good Christian, we use the language, I'm a, he's a good Christian. Oh, they're not really a Christian. They say they're a Christian. When you've tried hard to be good, think about how unfulfilling it has been, right? The work in faith is not in trying to do, the work in faith is in putting ourselves in a place to receive the mercy and forgiveness and love of God. So Dallas Willard said, faith is opposed, or grace is opposed to being earned, but it is not opposed to effort. You can't earn it, but you can work to receive it. You can put yourself in a place daily where you're reading your text, not because you should, because through it you hear the love of God. You can put yourself in a place where while you're washing your car, you know, you're, you're maybe singing a song, a hymn of worship and, and praise and adoration to God. Not because you should, but because through that, his grace becomes real to you. Grace is opposed to being earned. He already did it, one sacrifice for all. But it doesn't mean that we can't posture ourselves to receive it. When you hear law like this, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Hear there the psalmist who over and over and over sung about the beauty of God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. The ordinance of the Lord are pure. They give light to the eyes. The precepts of the Lord are altogether righteous. If you don't think the law is good, go read Psalm 119. The psalmist can't say enough about how good the law of God is. Jesus came and said, don't think that I came to do away with this. I came to give it life. So don't take anything out. Because this law is what gives life. Paul echoes the, the psalmist and the words of Christ when he says, no, nah, the law is not bad. It's the legalistic observance. It's the tendency to try to be good by doing what it says when that's not the reality. The reality is God in Christ has already said, hey, we're one. Let's do this thing together. I'm with you until the end of the age. And here's my instruction. And when we live in that and out of that, man, we see just the goodness and the reality of God. Let's pray. God, thanks that you're good. Thanks that you are um, you're righteous. You keep your promises. Thanks that in Jesus, you followed through in this most amazing way. God, I pray for patience in my life. Um, and I pray for patience uh, for those here, those who have yet to see the reality of your goodness, who have yet to see uh, your son in all his fullness. Lord, I pray that um, you would continue to open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts. For those of us who are striving, help us just to give up and surrender. For those of us who want more, Lord, I pray that you would put us in touch with people and places and opportunities where we could receive um, even more of your goodness and love in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear. Maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you 
uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them, feel free. Contact us in the office, give us a call, send us an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you, love to answer any questions that you have. Thanks for checking us out.